Justice Tech Pros here. I wasn't planning on doing a podcast today, especially with the short week. Like everybody else, there's a lot going on, but being the holidays are upon us, it got me reflecting on certain things and just how when you have a negative outcome being faced with the justice system, it throws off the whole dynamic. And I feel for families that have to go through that, you know, where they're not dealing with and enjoying the company of a loved one because of an injustice and how frustrating it is that there's basically nothing you could do about it. You have to make the best of a bad situation. You have to try and make it work. If you're visiting that loved one who's away, you try to plan your vacation around that and you try to make the best of the situation. And for anybody, obviously, it's it's heartache. It's a hard thing to deal with. To have to visit your loved one in those um, circumstances. And when they're innocent and you had high hopes that this wouldn't be the outcome and yet you find yourself in that position, it's really hard for anyone with uh, feelings to deal with. So I wanted to kind of talk about today what popped in my mind is how a judge could influence a jury and how... Uh, Certain things they say or they allow in their courtroom or don't allow could paint a certain picture and that in turn could in fact impact the jury's decision and or their verdict. And what sparked that is I was reading a uh, online column and I have to give the judge credit. Uh, The judge's name was Judge Rakoff. And it was in Manhattan Federal Court, and he was handling a uh, trial. And during the trial, it appeared the prosecutor or prosecution team, I'm not sure uh, who, who was painting the picture, they were going on a detailed movie-like description of an apparent ceremony that took place with a secret society why they had a, an expert on the stand. And the judge actually stopped it. And called for a sidebar and pretty much said, save that for the movies. Save that for a movie script. And I found that admirable, that he didn't really allow that story to take place where they try to influence the jury by making it so elaborate and so um, paint a picture where it's just irrelevant to the charges in front of them. They just want to go into these backstories and play into the whole movie basis of how certain things take place and really go into detail with something that was kind of irrelevant to the charges at hand. And I I just commend the judge for that because you don't really see that often. Too many times you see a judge who goes along with it and they'll ask details about these irrelevant things and all of that influences the jury. You know, the jury pays very close attention to what the judge is doing, and they pay very close attention to what the judge is allowing in, what objections she or he is overruling, or what objections they're sustaining on behalf of the prosecution, on behalf of the defendants. All of that could influence the jury one way or the other, and Rightfully so. The judge, you know, has a powerful position. I mean, they've earned it. But it's just disheartening when the judge is making rulings that, you know, if they were in a different 
if they were made in a different manner or they were allowed on the defense's side, if the defense was allowed to expand and wasn't shut down and didn't have their objection stopped or overruled, you know that it could have changed some of the tide. It could have changed some of the possible outlooks that the jury had because they're missing information because defense was not allowed to elaborate or even offer an explanation. You know, sometimes the defense would want to go further with the line of questioning, direct questioning that a witness had. And then when they try to, objections are made and the objections are sustained and then the defense has to move on to another point. And if those, if the defend the defense team, if the attorneys were allowed to elaborate and further question and further um, go down the road they had in their head to expand on the initial line of questioning laid out by the prosecution or the prosecutor, things may be different. It may have played out differently. You may they may have been able to expose certain things to show any lies that may have been said. It's just frustrating sometimes when you are sitting in these various courts and you're dealing with um, rulings that are just stopping certain things from being said or you're dealing with, um, say, this Judge Rakoff, and again, I hope I'm pronouncing his name uh, correctly. Say he allowed that to play out, this whole movie script type thing where they're detailing these Uh, supposed ceremonies that take place. That has a huge impact in the general public. You know, they've seen movies all the time. They they get almost enamored by that. And that alone, you could paint a certain picture of somebody and then they get a a seed planted in their head and they're not going to get it out by the time deliberations come. So I, I really find that admirable that he just shot that down because it was irrelevant. And I didn't see it. I didn't witness it. I just read about it. And I just experiencing different, you know, experiencing trial, it was it was a uh, pleasant surprise to see a judge make a ruling like that and pretty much tell the prosecution, prosecutor, this is irrelevant. Save it for a movie script. Because that's really a lot of the times what they're trying to do. They, they're trying to play on the whole um, Hollywood theme of a lot of with a lot of these trials they're trying to play into the stereotypes that are brought up on the big screen of Italian Americans and and certain things that go on and my only gripe with that is deal with the charges at hand don't bring in things that are irrelevant just deal with the charges deal with the facts of that case you don't need to paint this picture of what Hollywood does or what supposedly goes on and this huge backstory. And it goes back to an earlier podcast I do. If you are going to pay that, paint that huge pa- backstory, why is the defense then not allowed to do the same thing with the witnesses? If you're allowed to go into all these details about history and what took place with the defendants that's irrelevant to the charges, why is the defense then limited to do the exact same thing to the witnesses put in front of them and the informants put in front of them that are claiming certain quote-unquote facts. Shouldn't it go both ways then? If you're going to not allow it in, then don't allow it in on both ends. You can't pick and choose, but they are allowed to pick and choose. They're allowed to submit 
a, a ton of background references and past things, and and it's up to the judge how far they could go with it, how far they're allowed to expand on it, and what's allowed in, what's not allowed in. But I, I've seen a lot of past unrelated actions, unrelated conduct that could negatively impact the defendant. I've seen it allowed in, and then when we tr- when the defense would try and get similar items allowed in toward the informants to also show what their past conduct has been, those requests were denied. And and it shows how much influence, you know, a judge has. And again, rightfully so, they've earned it. I just, you, you almost wish there was a bit of a handbook, you know, that kind of outlined where it wasn't so, so much freedom was given to personal opinions for for lack of a better term where a judge could just make uh, certain calls and it's almost luck of the draw on which judge you get you know that's again that's pie in the sky thinking it's not really you know uh, a reality but y- you would just figure there was more of something that would uh, keep those things out of the court things that are irrelevant things that are just used to paint a, a picture and to give the jurors a bias, a bias uh, would, wouldn't be allowed to be presented. And uh, I started just reading certain articles where jurors are impacted greatly by the influence of the judge. You know, um, they, they feel there's, you know, there was an article... If you go to APA.org and you just uh, search for do juror pressures lead to unfair verdicts? And I'm not going to, I'm just going to paraphrase, but basically this article is talking about how jurors were deadlocked and the judge instructed them to go back in and try to try to come up with a unanimous decision. And I believe it was in yeah, an hour later, they found the defendant guilty. And the way it played out afterwards was two jurors were leading towards acquittal. And between the pressures of being outnumbered and the judge's statement, they just gave in. And what's so terrible about that, they didn't give in because they believed the guy was guilty. They gave in to the pressures. And that that's that's really... That's a terrible, terrible outcome to have because of pressure and influence. You convict somebody. And I do blame the juries, the jurors. I mean, you gotta, but that's, that's a character type thing. And that's, you know, some people are built different ways. So I guess it's not fair in that sense for me to to say it. But I I do feel very strongly that if you sign up for the jury, you got to be strong minded and you got to stand by your convictions internal convictions not <laughs> not the ability to convict somebody let me make that clear your internal convictions if you feel strongly about something you can't let somebody sway you just because they want to go home or because they're louder than you are more aggressive than you are and they intimidate you you can't allow that when you're on the jury and that's that's concerning And the article goes on to say how psychological research concerning social and time pressure indicate that the concerns of a jury being influenced have merit. 
So there's actual research that supports the fact that if a juror or a person is under a time constraint or they're having social pressure, they could be influenced. And imagine that because a judge tells you to go back in and deliberate and because you're outnumbered and unfortunately you don't have the, the character that that's able to, to fight that because you are outnumbered and you just give in and because you give in now, somebody's convicted even though you felt they were innocent. And that's another example of the power that a judge does have. You know, who knows what they were thinking? They were maybe thinking, well, now the judge wants me to just come to a decision. I'm the only, myself and one other individuals are the only holdouts. I guess we're not seeing something right. Let's just convict. And if you notice, each each podcast is kind of running into one another. This goes into the reasonable doubt. Those two individuals had reasonable doubt, and they gave that up. They dropped it all because of being pressured, all because of feeling the pressure. And I'm not saying the judge intentionally pressured them. The judge could have just said, you know, try to try to try to come to a verdict, which is a fair statement to make. I mean, uh, they wanted everybody to be in uh, unison. They want everybody to be unanimous, but. If that's a, a legitimate psychological impact, they may have to rethink about how those things play out. If you have a few holdouts and now you're telling them to go back in and psychologically that affects somebody with a, um, I hate to say weaker, but just, you know, with somebody that is not as strong-willed as others that may be on the jury. And because of that character trait, they then switch their vote for the mere sake of appeasing others, of appeasing the judge and appeasing the other jurors. That's that's beyond upsetting. But those are the realities, and I think that is where the disconnect is. You know, I've said this in past episodes. There's, you know, uh, what's written in the books for law, what plays out, and then there's reality. And a lot of these things just don't apply. And that's one of them where you have a juror who is being fair and impartial and is going by the facts and is making sure they have no reasonable doubt. In theory, that's perfect. That's a perfect way. That's a perfect system in theory. But it's not playing out that way. So how do we get it to play out that way? What changes could we make to allow for human behavior to be accounted for? And by human behavior, if you have somebody who has a, uh, the ability to just give up because they don't want to fight, even though they feel strongly about somebody, or on the opposite side, you have uh, somebody who's a bully by nature, and they're looking to bully all the other members of the jury just to go with what they say, that's a dynamic that's hard to, to mitigate. So maybe you have to take certain steps to allow that, to allow each voice and each different personality to be heard. And I don't know what the answer is on that, other than the jurors have to be more educated, and the pool, the jury pool, has to go in there strong-minded. And they have to buck up, and they have to realize the importance of what they're doing. And that's us. That's the general public. That's members of society. We control that, and that's what is most frustrating. We control it, and we're allowing it to happen. Because the bottom line is, no matter what tactics play out in the courtroom, If you're strong-willed and you have a good basis and a good knowledge of what your responsibilities are, by all means, we would be okay. We would get more 
verdicts that are fair and that do represent the facts and that do account for reasonable doubt. But that's not happening because as a society, when we're called for jury duty, we're not doing our part. We're allowing things to influence us. Whether a judge is allowing elaborate stories that fit Hollywood scripts, as that other judge put it, and they're allowing all these unrelated details to be introduced just to taint the jury. If you're strong-minded, you'll, you'll blow that off. You'll see right through it. You know, one of the comments made on one of my videos, uh, a member, you know, said it right. And I told him and I, and I responded that it, it made too much sense because sometimes common sense doesn't play out. He had a suggestion where jurors should be, they would have to be trained before entering jury duty. He equated it to like attending a course. You know, if you have a license of any sort and you have to go get trained for that license. And I thought that was that was a great a great point to raise. How much how much that would change things if jurors had three days or four days or five days of training prior to serving, where it was explained thoroughly what their responsibilities were, what reasonable doubt was, what they had a way what they really shouldn't give any attention to. That would be phenomenal. But it, it doesn't happen that way. So we have, to, we have to try to do that as a society. And how do we do that? We spread, we, we educate ourselves. We listen to, you know, podcasts like this one. I'm sure there's a lot out there. We listen to radio shows. We, you know, we, we look up articles we investigate, we prepare ourselves. If you're selected for jury duty, there is so much out there that you could really educate yourself to know your responsibility and to know what you're going to be up against and how to see through what is just facade, what is smoke and mirrors, and what is legitimate. And you can't allow a judge's behavior to impact you. And I know it must be intimidating. You're sitting in the jury box, you have the judge... You're looking up to them. Um, you're looking at it like the judge is fair and they're just trying the case, which a lot of the times I'm sure is 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 the fact. But when you have a judge that may be not so fair and is trying to steer things a certain way, it could have a tremendous impact. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, somebody of a not so strong internal constitution will get swayed and we'll almost look at it, well, if the judge feels this way, I guess I should feel that way. And that's why it's so powerful. And being there is psychological backup with research pointing to how these outside pressures could have people just give up and sway their vote and just just to, just to relieve themselves of that situation. They just don't want to be... A lot of people don't like conflict, and there's nothing wrong with that. They just don't want to be in that atmosphere. They want to try to voice their opinion, but if they're getting all this outside influence that's telling them, hurry up already, let's go, people fold to that. And how do we change that? The only way to change that is you have to realize the gravity of what you're dealing with when you're tasked with serving on a jury. You have to realize, not only is that person's life in your hands, their family's life is in your hands. You could change their entire future on your decision. If they're innocent and the government did not prove their case, and it doesn't matter 
and I know it's hard to get, you know, to understand that, but that's just how the law works. If you think somebody's guilty in your head, but the government and the prosecution or the state didn't prove beyond the reasonable doubt that they're guilty in a criminal case, you cannot convict them. If you have reasonable doubt, you cannot convict them, even if you think they're guilty, but you're just not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's, I know it's very hard for people to stick to that. And that's probably a huge majority of the problem. They, you know, as I, uh, dissected in the reasonable doubt episode, they don't use that. They almost go by, well, I feel more so one way, but I do have reasonable doubt. But I'm going to convict because I do think he may be guilty. Not of these charges, but he or she may be guilty. So I'm going to convict based on that. And that just wipes out the whole system. The whole system of how it's supposed to be. And that's what's frustrating. I think when the forefathers set this system up, they really had the intentions of it running fairly from the documents I've read, from everything I understood. But I think that's just been manipulated through the years where what plays out is not what is written on paper. And what is hypothetical is just not a reality. And when you look at it on paper, you say it's a very fair system. But when it plays out and you see what really takes place and you see the control or how a judge conducts the courtroom can influence and impact the verdict. It's very hard to just sit there and you have to watch it happen. You have to watch it play out. There's nothing you can do. Your hands are tied at that level. You have to wait. You have to wait for an appeal. If things didn't go your way, you have to wait. But in the meantime, families are suffering. They're missing holidays with their loved ones. They're not able to connect with them. They're not able to celebrate like they normally do. You know, you have a uh, internal dynamic that's built around family. And if one of those members is a strong patriarch or matriarch of that family or, or any kind of huge influence in that family, whether son, daughter, uncle, aunt, f- uh, grandfather, mother, grandmother, anybody who impacts that family isn't there to celebrate. It hurts on many levels, you know, and and poor families are suffering because of that, because of injustice. Now they have to suffer. And the only way to change that is by changing how things play out. You're never going to change how judges run their courtroom. You're never going to change things we have no control of. These are all things on a level that are above my pay grade. You know, passing bills and getting this. That's all great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But... The level we could change as a society is the jury level, the outcomes. That's where we hold the power, and I don't think people grasp that. If the jury would make the changes and and not even send a message, it's not about sending messages. It's just about going by what's right and what, what is written down. It's not about bypassing that. And it's not about giving in to being pressured. You just can't allow those things to happen. You need to stand by your beliefs, what you feel, and what played out in the courtroom. And if you have a judge who is trying to influence and limit and trying to 
stop the defense from going down a certain road. That should tip you off to a few things. You know, if you see an attorney passionate about something and really trying to to explore an area and all of a sudden they keep getting shut down with objection by objection by objection by the prosecutor, how doesn't that tip you off to something? And again, it goes back to common sense, which I harp on a lot. How doesn't that give you an inclination that something's not right? Why don't they want you going down that road? Why don't they want you exploring that road? People are on trial for their lives sometimes. You have to have some, give some leeway and allow all the facts to be explored and dissected and understood. And if you see that playing out in a courtroom and you see a bunch of sidebars taking place, which is where the, you know, the judge calls or the attorney calls or the prosecutor calls for almost like a mini conference within a courtroom outside of the public and the jurors' ears. When you see that taking place right after an objection was made, try to put the pieces together. Try to use your analytical skills. Map out what just took place in front of you. Map out what led to that sidebar. And just think about it. I'm not saying make uh, decisions based on that, but make it a factor. Put it in the back of your brain later when you're deliberating. Bring it up to the others. Say, hey, remember when that uh, defense attorney started questioning about uh, that witness's history? Do you remember how quickly that was shut down? Why do you think that was? Or do you remember when that uh, defense attorney was bringing up something related to the guy's uh, character where he uh, broke out of jail or he hit somebody, hit his wife? And remember how quickly he was stopped and the objections started and then that sidebar took place? Why do we think that is? Just something to kick around. It should all be accounted for. It should all be discussed when you're back in that, in that deliberation room. As hard as it may be, to not be influenced depending on, you know, who you are as a person. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's built differently. And it may be hard to sometimes stand up when you're the overwhelming minority in a deliberation setting. But you got to try to realize what's at stake. And it's not a matter of let's just finish up and get home. You got to try to realize what's at stake here. There's somebody's life. Life. And then there's their family's lives. And their whole future is going to be altered. And their whole experience is going to be changed. And their interaction with one another is all going to be changed based on your decision. So you have to take it with the utmost seriousness. And you have to step up and you have to try to not get influenced and stand by your convictions. You know, everyone's different where... You have a strong-minded person, they'll sit there for as long as it takes to make sure their side's heard, and they'll they'll stand by how they feel. And I don't like bully tactics either. You could be strong-minded without being a bully. Let other people speak. Just stand by what you believe. Don't try to bully people to believe how you feel. That's not right at all. Just stand by your feelings. Explain it you know, in a smart way. Break it down. And let them understand how you're seeing things. It shouldn't be where you're trying to convince others. That's where I disagree with certain things. 
when I explain something, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm just laying out the facts and letting them understand my view of things. And then it's up to them how they conclude. Whatever conclusions they make is entirely up to them. But I'd want to just make sure they understand thoroughly how I see things or how I saw what played out in court or the things I picked on picked up on that the judge was doing, the prosecutors were doing, or what trial was going on. I mean, even if you have certain prosecutors uh, that aren't conducting themselves properly during court, that should also play out in your mind. If you see prosecutors, you know, being emotional and, and saying things and reacting, that shouldn't play out. You know, it's their job too. And that and, and the same with defense. I'm, I'm not just going one way. It's, I'm not talking about when you're um, defending your client or when the prosecutor is, you know, um, defending their case. I'm not talking about that because you should get passionate. You know, it's it's uh, it's an intense situation. What I'm talking about is, you know, when they're sitting there and it's not their turn to go and they're reacting to the other side. All those things should be looked at. All that stuff should kind of be kept professional. Try not to react. Just try to stand there and sit there and let the other side do their thing because the jury's picking up on all of that and the judge can control all of that they can make sure they're keeping an eye on the prosecution and the defense team just to make sure everybody's conducting themselves in the right manner when it's not their turn to present and i understand it's very frustrating you know probably for both sides obviously Personally, I appeal more with the defense side. Lives are on the line. On the other end, it shouldn't be as personal, in my opinion. When you see, you know, I don't know, they just, uh, it should be a little more professional. It shouldn't be so personal on the prosecution's end. When it comes across like sometimes they have a vendetta, it, it's, it's strange to me. I just don't understand it, but that's a topic for another another day. And I just feel that the only way these podcasts and these topics that I discuss will have any weight and really mean anything in the grand scheme of things is if potential jurors take notice and start to change that and start to change the tide of how they deliberate and start to realize that the judge does have an impact even if you're not picking up on it subliminally they're having an impact and you have to take a step back and realize that when you go in that deliberation room and you know this podcast is organic it changes it's gonna change as time goes on and this is almost separate and apart well it is actually separate and apart from my firm I mean my firm is just you know we do litigation support and uh, we're, we're in the trenches with that and I just wanted to start this we appeal on a corporate level to the attorneys to their practice to the law firms but I wanted to appeal do something to appeal more to the public aspect because I felt in conjunction with one another it could be a powerful team you know if you have a team fighting for alongside with your defense counsel and at the same time trying to appeal to the public just to educate, I think that's a, a powerful combination. And that's what sparked this whole thing. In addition to experiencing, you know, uh, a powerful and unfortunate result in a case that I was tied to professionally and personally, personally more than anything, uh, 
that also sparked this. And that kind of took me outside of my comfort zone, to be honest. You know, but I realized to have an impact, and when you're trying to do things to help a loved one, you have to go outside your comfort zone sometimes. And you could do it in a way, in my opinion, that is the right way of getting it across. You could do it in a way where you're not getting too personal and you're not putting your business out there. You could do it in a way where you're just enlightening others of what's going on. So you're helping and you're still kind of in your in your level of comfort. For me, I'm a little outside of it, but you do things sometimes where you feel you could help somebody and help the loved one and you're not always, you know, that, I hate to keep saying comfortable, but that comfortable doing it. So that that's really the purpose of this whole thing. And I'm hoping between the two elements, between supporting defense and trying to fight these things within the legal system and working with law firms and counsel and at the same time speaking with the public and almost mediating and trying to keep them in the loop and try, trying to help them get through these things and understand how things take uh, play out, I think the combination could be something quite positive. And I'm going to keep going with it, and I'm going to try to adapt and try to incorporate certain things that I th- feel could help educate the potential jury pool. Um, right now, we have I, I have a guest for the new year. He's a forensic expert, and we're going to go, I believe it's going to be uh, January 8th. And we're going to dive into the whole cell site technology that I told you about where people are getting locked up over this technology because it's a junk science. And those are all things that are so important. And I want to try to pick different topics that I notice the state or the government uses during their case to make their case sound strong. But when you break it down, you investigate the science behind it. You see all the flaws. So those things all have to be explored. The, the only way to change this whole tide is through education. And, and some jurors get it right. I've seen some acquittals where the jurors got it right, and they did see through the smoke and mirrors. And I commend them. And it's not that I just commend them, oh, if you got a, an acquittal and say I personally am happy about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just going by they got it right. You know the person was innocent, and they found them innocent. And honestly, that's what it is all about. That's the whole purpose of what I'm trying to do and accomplish is just to help people have the tools to get these verdicts right and and to make sure that whatever they're not seeing in the courtroom, they have experienced and understood in another platform such as this. So when they go into that courtroom, they're almost prepared. They almost have a basis of what they're there to do. And what took place behind the scenes. And how they got there. And I'm trying to have these things follow in somewhat of, of in succession. You know, and where I touch on the grand jury. I touch on reasonable doubt. I touch on the, on the informants. And there's going to be, be a lot of um, overlap. I'll jump back and forth. That's just my style too. Sometimes I, I jump back and forth. But a lot of these things you can't help but overlap into one another. You know, like today's 
a basic concept of how a judge has so much power to influence the jury, it all kind of overlaps, you know, and it all kind of goes into how the jury then needs to be up to par and to make sure they're there to do their job and not get influenced. You know, if you have a a judge who starts elaborating on these unnecessary details, you got to hope that the jury realizes it's unrelated and they need to just focus on the evidence for the charges at hand, not past conduct, not past pleas that the defendants may have took, not things that they may have pled guilty to in the past. What's in front of you now? What did they do now related to these specific crimes that they are specifically indicted for? That's the key. That's what juries and jurors need to have drilled into their head. Don't allow all the smoke and mirrors and don't allow the Hollywood scripts to be read in court and played out in court and the dramatics to go on and on. Try to see through that. Get to the meat of what is being put out there. And that's the only way people who are innocent will have a fair shot. Because if the jurors who are finding innocent people guilty keep going down the road that they're going down, it's a scary future ahead. You know, when you you have DNA exonerating people and then false cell site. I was reading an article. That's why I'm so honed in on the cell site. I was reading an article how cell sites alone are responsible for convicting all these innocent people because the science was off. It's it's crazy. Jurors are relying on things that they really don't understand and they need to be exploited, uh, explored and exploited for the inaccuracies that they contain. You can't go around passing things off as 100% accurate when it's not. You have to give the other elements that could affect that data. You have to. And I understand the other side's not going to want to do that. They're going to only want to paint it one way, and that goes that goes for both sides. Defense wants to show our side. Prosecution wants to show their side. But let's say the defense doesn't do that. They make an error. They just don't do it. They don't, they don't exploit it. I, I want the jurors to know, and that's my purpose. I want to try to fill that gap where maybe if certain mistakes are made on the defense side where they don't, they don't address certain things that should be addressed, I'm hoping that one or two jurors listens to this and remembers the information that I'm telling them that isn't coming from me because I'm not an expert. The information I'm telling them that is coming from the experts, those who are vested in those different fields, those that do nothing but study these different areas, whether it's DNA, whether it's cell site, whether it's object recognition, where they're telling you, you know, this is a certain car or a certain mile, whatever it may be. You got to understand all the things that line up to that and everything that affects those different sciences and how they they may not be 100% accurate. And if they're not, you want to know as a juror what could influence it. And coincidences do happen. That was one thing I noticed that, you know, they tried painting in in certain courtrooms like, oh, is it a coincidence, certain things? Yes, coincidences do happen. Obviously, if it's something crazy, I'm not talking about that. But they try to make such light of legitimate coincidences that could occur. You know, if friends are talking frequently, oh, why are they talking so much? 
I don't know, sometimes people talk a lot to each other. Why is that automatically something negative? You can't make those leaps and those jumps. You're going to start jump you're going to start making conclusions on guilt based on call volume. You got to look through that. See how it took place. See see you know see the history behind it. See the friendship involved. All those things have to be weighed. So this was an impromptu podcast today. And I just wanted to get those thoughts out there for the listeners. And again, I appreciate all the support we're receiving from um, members on the various social media. I really appreciate it. Subscribe to the channel if you like it. This way you get the updates. And I wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy it with your loved ones. And I'll speak to you after the holiday.